the Reset Rebel podcast with me, Joe Yule. And I'm feeling slightly out of practice, having not actually uh, picked up my podcasting uh, recording equipment since before Christmas. Uh, so it's an absolute pleasure to be back in your plug holes today um, here at the Hub Studios where we're recording today's episode. And I'm very excited to be joined by a very sassy woman who have been dying to get on to the series for a really, really long time. And like I always say with many of my guests, it always takes a little bit of time with busy um, very successful people to actually persuade them to make space in their diary but we've done it today she's sitting right in front of me and Serene Sass is a music industry emerging markets technology and humanitarian expert as a visionary entrepreneur music consultant to some of the most successful United Nations music projects and former VP of emerging markets for Warner Music Group Serene has traveled the world building relationships with key political humanitarian technology and music industry partners but she's here with us today to talk to us about all of her music industry experience many of her fantastic stories and a brand new project that's just been launched Serene welcome to the Reset Rebel podcast Hi Joe, thank you for having me. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here with you. Um, yeah, we have been trying to get this in for a little while. Um, but yeah, really great to be here with you and thank you for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure. And um, you know, this all kind of started actually when we realised that you're pretty much my neighbour. Yes, <laughs> in our beautiful hood uh, that is Santilalia. And, you know, until I moved to Ibiza, I had never actually been to Santilalia. Um, I'd come, like probably many people, I'd come for like 10 days every year, you know, a couple of times a year with a whole bunch of friends and family, partied on and never, ever ventured to where we live, which is an absolute um, magical place to live. It is magical and I'm in exactly the same boat, you know, all, all through my 20s, early 20s, I was coming to Ibiza and, you know, with all my kind of, you know, party mates and I'd never been north of Ibiza town in about 10 years of coming here. And then suddenly one day I hired a car, was feeling very, uh, you know, left of centre, thought I'd go and check out this hippie north that everyone talks about. And I, I can clearly remember the first time I ever drove into Santillaria, it was just like, that is a stunningly gorgeous, well, it's a village really, I wouldn't even call it a town, is it? Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely a village and, you know, when you live here on the island and I moved here with my seven-year-old um, in October 2020, so in the middle of lockdown, we were living in Notting Hill in London, um, I'd worked at Warner Music Group for a long time and my office was in London so I kind of felt like I needed to be there. But we moved to um, to Ibiza. My sister, who you've also had on your podcast, uh, Deborah, she's an amazing, amazing woman, also running a startup. Um, she'd been living here for a long time. I just got to this point where I realised that I didn't need to be in London to to run my business, which I think probably a lot of people get to. And within a few weeks, made the move, found a place, um, you know, we're five minutes walk to the beach. My son goes to an incredible school here. Um, it's just a magical place to live. Uh, I think most people, you know, would say that it's a little bit of like everything. And if you're an entrepreneur, being here is especially incredible because there's so many entrepreneurs here. 
they're, you know, everyone's a little bit spiritual, everyone's a little bit creative and everyone's, you know, most people run businesses from here. So, yeah, it's a great place to be. I mean, that's what the number one thing I, you know, love about coming here to the hub as well. It's just like it is difficult sometimes being an entrepreneur and running a business completely on your own and it is a bit of a lonely path sometimes actually and you know when you do come to a place like Ibiza and you're surrounded by everybody doing something maybe not similar but they're all in the same boat in terms of the fact that they all work by themselves from a laptop and they can be anywhere in the world it just feels that little bit more you know all obviously like a community but a little bit more comforting to see other people kind of walking that path so you know obviously this is this is new ground for you you worked at, at Warner's for you know almost 15 years how did how did that you know process begin in London um yeah basically I always wanted to be a lawyer for some crazy reason I have no idea why um but I I was I was working as a lawyer. I didn't qualify and I didn't finish my law degree. Um, and I was out in New York. It was early 20s. And I realized one day I was working for this small law firm. And I realized that I don't want to be a lawyer. I don't want to work with these people. Um, I actually wanted to be creative. I wanted to do something creative. But I didn't think, I, don't, I guess I didn't have the confidence in myself to do it and think that I could be creative. And so I left New York. I went back to London, moved back to London and bought some Technics 1200 turntables. <laughs> Um, my dad is an avid vinyl collector. Um, he was a jazz musician. You know, my sister and I uh, and my brother grew up with Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane and Billie Holiday and all the greats. And so I bought a whole load of vinyl. I started DJing in London um, and like at little bars and clubs. I DJed at a couple of members clubs like um, Arts Club and then Hospital Club, I think was the other one. But I needed a day job because I wasn't really making enough money to like pay my rent from my you know small little DJing gig. So then I started to work at Warner, and I just applied for a job. I, I was in a really junior position um, in the legal department, and just kind of worked my way up. Um, and then yeah, ended up spending um, a large portion of my career at Warner Music. Yeah, no, fifteen years is a is a is a good old humph, really. Let's face it. <laughs> I mean, what was it like, you know, the first time you walked through the doors? I mean, you know, it sounds kind of similar to, you know, when I first took my job at CNN and, you know, it was just the moment of walking into the mothership of news. And, you know, I wasn't working in the right department either. I was working in the business department and crunching numbers and calculating stock market fluctuations overnight and writing scripts about the Hang Seng, which I'd never even heard that word before. I walked in there on my very first day and I really wanted to work in the actual news department. And that was always my goal right from the get-go so it's kind of interesting to to kind of hear your first kind of observations when you walked into that huge enormous corporation that I think you know millions of people all over the world would like to work for. It was um, yeah it's funny you know because I wanted to be a lawyer and had worked in big law firms around the world that was my way into the music industry was to work as a junior kind of like paralegal assistant in the legal department um, and then by the time I'd left, I was vice president of emerging markets. And Warner was amazing. I had such an incredible experience. Um, it was full of, you know, many highs and a number of lows. Um, you know, the industry has changed a lot, but it has a ways to go. And, um, you know, before I left Warner, back in probably 2017, 2018, something like that, there was every UK company had to do a gender pay gap study. And Warner Music did theirs, and the gender pay gap 
between what men and women were paid at Warner was 49%. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of mind-blowing to think about it now. Wow. Yeah. Um, outrageous. I, yeah. I mean, come yeah, on. That's absolutely outrageous. shocking. It's, yeah, it's about 30-something percent. I mean, still not great, but... Um, you know, being a woman who held a senior executive role at the company um, alongside a lot of other women that I worked with that are of colour or of ethnic origin, it was very challenging. And um, I had two bosses in um, at Warner. One was in New York, one was in London, both middle-aged white men. <laughs> um, you know, both kind of very happy to stifle any kind of creativity, if you like. Um, but my experience at Warner was incredible. Um, you know, there were some amazing people that I got to work with. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Seymour Stein, who has passed away now. Um, Seymour passed on last year. Uh, just before his 85th birthday, he was my great, great friend and mentor. He signed Madonna, Talking Heads, The Ramones, Ice-T. I mean, just so many amazing um, musicians around the world. And we travelled the world together a lot looking for artists. And Seymour would always say to me, and it's kind of really one of the principles I've built my company, Conscious Music Group, on is amazing music can come from anywhere. And it really can. And I, you know, I remember Seymour calling me one day. He said, I'm going to go to the foothills of the Himalayas to look for this Indian rock band. And we would do stuff like that all the time. Um, another person to, to talk about, Craig Kalman. Um, shout out to Craig. Craig is the chairman uh, and CEO of Atlantic Records based in New York. Um, he's a huge kind of, he's been a massive mentor to me and a friend. He sits on my advisory board now at Conscious Music Group. And he's just a badass, an incredible A&R man, also signing some incredible acts. Um, but both Seymour and Craig were entrepreneurs, and I think that's the difference. You know, at a big corporation like Warner or any of the other major record labels, you get a lot of very senior employees <laughs> who don't really understand kind of, I guess, the creative process so much. But, you know, it, as you said before, Joe, it is being an entrepreneur is so challenging, but it's so great. Like the the joy that you get from setting up a business around an idea that you have and having people that come on board to help support you and people that invest in your company and strategic partners and things like that. It's just, it's a blessing. It really is. And you couldn't pay me to go back to work for somebody else. Um, and I feel like with the work that I'm doing now, you know, I have a certain level of responsibility um, to help with this quantum shift that we're going through in the music industry. And, you know, I take it seriously. You know, we run the company based on the principles of equality, meritocracy, integrity and truth. And it's very important um, in a way I kind of learned how not to run a record label from my previous experience. And now, you know, with all the great people we have in the mix, we can try and take things to the next level. You know, we're on a, it's, it's a journey and it's a process. I mean, what age were you when you started just going in there and, and looking for new artists? And what, you know, what were you looking for? You say you went to look for a, a rock band on the foothills of the of the Himalayas, which is a place I've always wanted to go. And I can really envisage that in my mind's eye. But I mean, what, you know, how did those little whims come? Like, where did those sniffs of possibility and opportunity come in from? Well, it started, I mean, I just followed Seymour wherever he went, basically, and he traveled, I mean, anywhere he would go. Um, my job at Warner was to basically look after all the countries in the world that Warner didn't have its own presence in, which happened to be what people in the, in, we, in the West called emerging markets, you know, 
we know all these countries have emerged, places like India and parts of Africa and, and Asia, but that's what they were called. And so my job was to go to all of these countries and I looked after about 50 countries around the world. So Eastern Europe, all of Eastern Europe, um, Greece, Turkey, Israel, Russia, Ukraine, um, India, East and West Africa, North Africa, South Africa, um, the Caribbean, um, all of those types of countries. And they were, you know, basically the countries that nobody gave a shit about, really. Um, but Seymour did because he's always travelled the world and he's always been in all of these places. So I would just kind of follow him. Um, but what I really tried to, to work hard to do at Warner was to for the companies that I would find in these local markets that would represent Warner, I would try and help the local artists come out onto the global stage and for Warner to help them and be a partner. So it wasn't just that they would take Warner's repertoire, if you like, and be our kind of partner in, in India or in Jamaica or wherever it was. But I would really, like, and Seymour would help me a lot, like, are there local artists that they're working with that we could help bring out to the global stage? And, you know, with varying degrees of success, because like I said, for a long time, nobody gave a shit about any of those countries that I looked after. Um, and then that's the most exciting, surely, like to, to find an artist in a place like that and bring them onto a global platform. I mean, there can't be anything more satisfying other than working for yourself than to see someone like that break through. I mean, can you give us a name or a story? Well, there, I guess, um, basically, there, there were so many different artists. But, you know, if you're going back, say, 10 years ago, you know, um, we're in a different world now and back then it was predominantly very difficult to break into the kind of Anglo-American music market because many artists um, come from countries or would come from countries where Western music, if you like, or Anglo-American music, which is, you know, people that sing in English from the major markets around the world and, and predominantly um, America and the UK, that music was not necessarily the most popular in their territories. So sometimes it's, it was about trying to figure out um, how do you support the local music by bringing them out, but not um, does everybody have to sing in English? No, they don't have to sing in English, you know. Um, and we've proven that over the last few years that you can see artists from so many different countries that come out and don't sing in English and are not going to sing in English, but are very well respected around the world. But it really, it was quite a long process. I think you see um, some amazing musicians that have come out maybe in the last few years um, that um, are really representing their own music. Um, so an example of a, a project that we just did, and this is through my company, Conscious Music Group, um, we have six musicians from the Sahel region, which is in Africa. Um, it's the most impacted region by climate change. Um, and we had six musicians and 15 visual artists, and the musicians are Via Fakature, who is Ali Fakature's son. He wrote this incredible song um, called My Sahel. And we basically have on the record Songhoi Blues, an incredible Songhoi Blues are like a punk rock desert band. Um, OMG Umi Gi, which is she is an incredible singer and rapper from Dakar and Senegal. Um, we have uh, Amadou and Mariam, who are an incredible duo. Duo there, uh, the blind couple from Mali in West Africa that are based in in Paris and France. 
um, Basaku Koyate and Tal National. And we brought all these musicians together to basically bring awareness to what's going on in that part of the world, but also to play their own instruments and to, to kind of just come together as a celebration of music from this part of the world. tried to do that as I've gone around to different places um, because it's really important and now we live in a world in the music industry where the barriers to entry are not like they used to be you know you before you used to you had to be signed really to a major record label you had to manufacture CDs which is very costly and and you know print vinyl now you don't have to do that really you can put it out on the digital service platforms and we see so much music from all over the world that is just like, you know, on any playlist you'd go on, there's now probably going to be, I don't know, half of it will be different musicians from different parts of the world. So we've seen a real change that's going on and I am super excited about what we're going to see coming up as we move in into adopting the new technology such as blockchain and Web3 and giving... Um, a platform to musicians that come from all over the world. what you just said there about um, 
the singing in English thing, actually, because uh, I was chatting to an artist recently called Eduardo Castillo, who's from Venezuela originally, and he was in a band called Madaleva, and he made a track called Love Song with these musicians from Aware Musica. They've now set up a different um, band entirely. And we were talking about this song, and I was like, well, what language is it in? Because I just don't understand it. And he was like, well, it's not a language. It's just like, you know, it's just gibberish, basically. But, you know, I could even sing along to it and sing every word because I love it so much, but I have no idea what I'm singing. And I think it's very interesting to hear, you know, can artists like that still make it in, in England? Because obviously England is, you know, theoretically the place, or obviously America as well. But I still think that England has a very special place in the music industry's heart in terms of, you know, where the big legends have come from and a lot of the, you know, the global spotlight seems to shine. Yeah, I think, you know, as you're saying that, I think about um, a Kowali, the greatest Kowali singer that ever lived, in fact, Nusret Fatih Ali Khan. Um, He was idolised by Jeff Buckley. Jeff Buckley absolutely idolised Nusret. Um, Pearl Jam did a record with them. um, And Kowali music is basically music that is a direct connection to the divine. And it's it's kind of, I guess you could say, chanting or um, not necessarily singing in words, but it's so powerful. And this really is the power of music, you know. there, I always kind of take it back to um, this idea that there are three types of music and which by that I mean there's music that comes from instruments, there's music that comes from our body or our souls and when we're singing um, and then there's music that comes from the spheres or the cosmos and it's why we have such a deep almost everybody has such a deep resonance with music because it's just all around us and you don't have to sing in any language to to know when there's a connection and when you resonate with a great song. I mean, Seymour always used to say, a great song can come from anywhere. And it can, right? Like, it doesn't matter if it's English or whatever language. You're, if, a, if it's a great song and it inspires something in you, you're going to listen to it over and over again. Does you not forget so interesting though you just don't think about that being a possibility I think until you've you know basically sung along with something and realised you have no idea what you're talking about interesting I mean obviously you had quite a close connection with the Bob Marley you know Bob Marley and his family and obviously Bob's no longer here and there is an episode on on Reset Rebel about his appearance here in 1978 I really wish I'd been there Um, but yeah I'm kind of fascinated to hear a little bit more about that if you don't mind giving us some some juicy stories Uh, about juicy stories but um I met the Marley family. In fact, I was just in London last week at the the premiere for the Bob Marley film, which has been a long time in the making. Um, And I actually remember I just met the family and I went to Jamaica for the first time um, in my life about 12 years ago, which is when they brought out the documentary film about Bob's life. Uh, And, I mean, I went there with the whole family and Rita and everything. It was just quite the the incredible experience but I basically met the family because I had started doing this job which was became vice president of emerging markets and so my job was to find partners in all these territories and we didn't have a partner Warner at the time didn't have a partner in in Jamaica or the Caribbean 
So I said to Seymour, you know, my friend Seymour, I said, look, we, you know, do you have any recommendations? Who could we talk to? He said, let me introduce you to Chris Blackwell. So he literally, you know, calls up Chris and says, can you talk to my friend Serene? And I was kind of nervous, right? Like, call, I, then I call up Chris. Um, you know, we have this fairly long talk about lots of things. Um, and he said, let me talk to Sadella Marley. You know, I'm sure they'd be really interested. So Sadella is Bob's eldest daughter. Um, and she, you know, she has become a great friend and mentor. She also sits on my advisory board at Conscious Music Group. Um, and she's a badass. She is, She. I love working with her. It's a joy to work with her and the family. She, her son is Skip Marley. Skip is doing incredible things in music. And I... I went to the family's house. The first time I ever went to their house in Miami was to try and do this deal with the with the Marley family. So again, I'm really nervous. Haven't re- don't really know them very well. First time I'm meeting everybody in person. Chris Blackwell flies over from Jamaica for the meeting. Um, I I go to the house and um, and basically we we're meant to have like a two hour meeting and. Um, it was also Sadella's birthday that day, right? So I remember her assistant saying, look, it's Sadella's birthday, but, you know, we'd love to meet you in person. Can you come down? Um, and so um, the brother of the owner of Warner Music Group, who also lived in Miami, um, basically said, Serene, I'll come to the meeting with you because I was going on my own, right? Like, And I kind of felt I needed a bit of support. So... Alex comes and picks me up in his white convertible Bentley and we drive on down to the Marley Stylish. Um, yeah, I was hoping it was going to be a little bit more like low-key, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> very, very understated there. <laughs> um, not sure if he still drives it around. but So anyway, so we drove to the to the Marley house, um, Sadella's house. We're all sitting there. Chris Blackwell's there. Rohan Marley was there. Um, and we have this meeting and I kind of just, you know, conduct the meeting as best as I can. Um, none of my bosses are around because they weren't coming with me and they didn't really care that much about it. But um, but Alex deeply cared. Alex, um, the, the brother of the owner, was a, a grateful deadhead and had seen Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers and Sadella Marley was part of that group. So he's seen them and he really wanted to, you know, just kind of meet them and see what they're about. So I go to this meeting, you know, um, we sit there, we talk about everything, all the ideas that we have. And at the end of the meeting, I never forget it, Rohan stood up and said, we've never had a meeting with a record label like this before. This is incredible. We can't wait to go into business with you. And I was like, yes, okay, I've done my job well today. And then all the brothers turned up, Damien, Julian, Stephen, and it was a party. And our meeting went on till like midnight. Um, it started at like four in the afternoon. We ended up staying there for about eight hours. Um, it was just an incredible experience. And then I got to go the next day to the studio um, at Stephen's house um, called The Lion's Den and sit with the boys as they were making um, a new record. And it just kind of went on from there. Um, we also did a project in July 2020, so right in the middle of lockdown. Um, 2020, Bob Marley would have been 75 years and the UN, um, we are music advisors to the UN. Um, there are some amazing people at the UN. There are some not so amazing people at the UN, but I think, you know, I, I am lucky to work with some great people, but, um, we'd always discussed with the UN also was turning 75 in 2020 and let us not forget the UN was set up 
to avoid World War Three. <laughs> One could argue it's not going so well. However, we were still going to do something in 2020 together. And then obviously lockdown happened and we just thought, okay, you know, the world needs one love. That's what the world needs. And so we ended up making a new version of Bob Marley's iconic one love record. And we were going to get lots of big name people from all over the world, let's put it that way. And then George Floyd was killed. And George Floyd being killed, I mean, not only shook, you know, many, many of us around the world, but it was especially kind of a a moment in the music industry because for the first time in I don't know how long everybody kind of stood together in solidarity and when that happened we kind of just decided that we wouldn't have any big super big names on the record it would just be the family and we had 15 musicians from marginalized communities around the world Um, and this is what Conscious Music Group does is we basically work with musicians from refugee camps, favelas, ghettos, conflict zones, indigenous cultures around the world. So we had these 15 musicians on the record. Um, We put it out. Rita Marley came in the video for us. Stephen Marley helped produce it. Sadella and Skipper singing singing on the record and then we have all these other musicians and, and it was amazing. We raised a ton of money, you know, millions for the UN. I think we have about 100 million streams and views on the song and the video and it was just we did it so quickly because we were right in the middle of lockdown and no one knew when we were coming out or, or what was going on but it just was a beautiful experience and you know it, it's a real blessing to work with people that have this ethos and you know their father I mean Bob's music is everywhere in the world you know he stood he really stood for for unity he gave a voice to the voiceless and you know, I don't know how many other artists in the world have have reached as many people in as many different places as Bob Marley has. It's on darling, hold me tight. We're going out marching, then we'll dance all night. That's exactly what I was just about to bring up. I just feel like that actually sent shivers down my spine when you said about the fact that he was turning 75 in 2020 and that was the year that, you know, everybody needed to come together as one. And actually, that is the year that I put out the recording of his entire gig here in Ibiza. And that's exactly what I called the episode because I said exactly the same thing in the introduction. It was so heartbreaking how separated and segregated we were all feeling at the time that I just wanted to do like just one thing and I put it out on Valentine's Day actually which is neatly approaching once again so very interesting because you know there is no other man that has a legacy I don't think that is that worldwide and that globally appreciated in the same way like he just touches the heart of every single person who's got one because ultimately you know his words are so poignant and so real and so true and so relevant I think to just everybody so it's very yeah it's very incredible really I think that he managed in such a short life as well to to achieve all of that and to have so many incredible children I mean the man was busy and very loved clearly yes very very loved um and you know so the third generation is Sadella's son and and Stephen and Ziggy's all of the kids and they are really like carrying on this mission in a really profound way so um yeah long live this message of unity through music long long may it continue 
I mean, you say that that meeting, everybody stood up and said, you know, why? Well, that they've never been in a meeting like that before. And that's obviously what you're taking forwards, that you're carrying the baton of all the lessons you've learned into your conscious music group. So, you know, where did this kind of idea spawn from? Obviously, through the what not to do's. But, you know, what was the initial kind of like spark? Yeah, you know, um, about 10, 12 years ago, I... um, never forget it I, I was traveling for work so I was sitting in my hotel room and you know as you do you put on whatever is the only English speaking channel like CNN or whatever it was it was probably CNN I remember sitting there um, in the morning before I had to go to some meetings and the Pakistan floods of 2012 I think it was 2012 had just happened maybe 10, 20, anyway early um, t- about 10 12 years ago the floods were incredible because there were like 20 million people were homeless. I mean, the stats were just like really through the roof. 50,000 women a week were giving birth in the floods. Like they, you know, with no safe homes and things like that. And nobody really in the Western world at least really cared. Um, And I remember I was watching like some news program or, you know, watching the news on CNN and this woman called Valerie Amos, Baroness Valerie Amos, was getting off a helicopter, I think with Angelina Jolie or someone, and they were there in Pakistan at the floods. And my father was from Pakistan, and I have this like kind of deep connection, even though I've only been to India, not to Pakistan, but I have a deep connection with the country. And I remember I was on the phone to my sister, Nat Warner, and I was like, oh, you know, there's this woman from the UN called Valerie Amos. She's just, you know, she's there. Because we were all talking about it. And Warner had just signed this incredible musician, um, Pakistani musician called Ruma. And her and I had been talking about, like, the floods and what can we do? Like, what can we do? You know, we felt, everyone felt so helpless that, that cared about it. And so then my sister, Warner, she basically got in touch with the UN, found Valerie, but, like, got in touch with her office. Valerie's office came back almost immediately and said, look, she's not here at the moment. She's travelling. Um, but, you know, we'd love to talk more about something, you know, what kind of ideas do you have? And so... That started just this incredible relationship um, with this incredible woman. So she is a baroness. She has a massive portrait hanging in the House of Lords. When I met her at the UN, she was the Undersecretary General. Um, she then went on to, she left after five years. It's a very difficult job to be Undersecretary General of a department called OCHA, which is emergency relief. Like her and I, like we'd be, we'd, we'd do an amazing event at the UN and we'd be, I don't know, in the boom, boom room at the stand and having drinks or whatever. And the next day, Valerie would be wearing a bulletproof vest on the way to Mogadishu in Somalia. Like she is, she was just an incredible badass woman. So she left the UN after five years, um, moved to SOAS University in the UK, and now is the first black woman to be the head of Oxford University. She's the first black woman to do everything she does in her life. She really is a huge inspiration and mentor to me. And so when I met her, the first job that we, the first job, the first project we worked on was an event at the General Assembly in New York for World Humanitarian Day and we had Beyonce performing and then I bought an artist um, called Natty. Natty is dreadlock singer-songwriter from London, lives off grid, grid with his family in Jamaica now. Um, we manage him, we're putting out his new music in the next couple of months, we're very excited. His new music is just incredible. So I took Natty there and we he performed on stage with Beyonce. It was just this amazing, beautiful, beautiful event. Um, 
And it just kind of started this thing in me that I just, I always knew, and I don't know, I don't don't mean for this to sound self-righteous at all, but I always knew I wanted to use whatever platform I had, no matter how big or small, in whatever industry, I wanted to use it to do something good and meaningful in the world. But I really didn't know what that was until I kind of, this moment came and I'm sitting there at the General Assembly and you know, 2,000 people in the audience, Anderson Cooper hosted it. It was just like this really beautiful event. I just remember thinking, this is the kind of music stuff I want to do. And that kind of just got me on a pathway. So I just kind of continued that. I set up a company on the side while I was at Warner. In fact, Valerie got the UN to give me a ton of money as a grant agreement to, to start that company and do some other projects. And then when I finally left Warner, um, to me, it was like, I'm just going to continue this, but I, this is not a charity. I want this. I want to set up a long-term sustainable company and to show, just like what Seymour used to say, that amazing music can come from anywhere and that the artists that we work with, many are who, you know, not every artist is from a marginalised community, if you like, but a lot of them are. And, you know, a big part of as we move into this new technology, Web3, blockchain, um, the use of Bitcoin as well for us, it's most of the musicians that we work with make up the two and a half billion people who are unbanked on the planet. So they get this technology immediately. And this technology, blockchain technology in particular, is what we what I believe will be the paradigm shift in the music industry and the creative industries because what it enables you to do especially in music where there have historically and predominantly been a lot of gatekeepers and now there are many gatekeepers in in the form of the digital service platforms or big tech right so the the general kind of way if you're a musician that you make a record and you make money is you, you make a record this is if you're a singer you put it up on Spotify or any of the DSPs not just to kind of you know say anything about Spotify because we they've opened up the world of music all the the digital service platforms have but if you put it up on any of the DSPs you know you really have to kind of pay to get it playlisted um you know you need to have connections with the editors to get it on certain playlists and get people specialized to do that and if you let's say you're a new artist it may take you six months to get a million streams in that six months um at the end of that six months, the DSP will pay you, let's say on average, three and a half, four thousand dollars It will take them probably two to three months to send you that money. So in nine months, you haven't really even made enough money to pay your rent. And that is the industry that we live in now. And what we're trying to do at Conscious, and we're, we're trying this out with some different technology partners, um, is to use the power of blockchain and Web3, if you like, to build community around our artists. So, And this kind of goes back to an essay that was written by the founding editor of Wired magazine, a guy called Kevin Kelly. He wrote an essay in 2008, I think it was. Um, and the name of the essay, I believe, was 1,000 True Fans. And it went like this. In the digital age, to be successful as a creator any kind of creator whether it's having a podcast or whether it's um, being a musician whether it's a chef whether it's a visual artist whatever it is you don't need to sell a million records 
if you're a musician. You don't need to have a million people come to your restaurant. You don't need to sell a million paintings if you're a visual artist. You just need a thousand people that give a shit about you and your work anywhere in the world. And that was kind of the ideology back then in 2008. And as we know, the internet took a detour and it just became about big tech and a lot of gatekeepers. And now what we see with this technology is that there is now a way as a musician or a creative or an artist to build a direct connection with your community. And this is what we're doing at Conscious Music Group. You know, for us, we're not out looking for the next one hit wonder or the next, you know, whoever that's going to be on, on, you know, number one on the Billboard charts. Like whatever chart success we have is, is amazing and fantastic. But that's not really our driving force. Our driving force is to work with musicians from places predominantly that are, uh, have been through a lot of adversity and have amazing fucking stories to tell and um, build a community around each of these musicians. Yo. I think that's a really interesting point to make, uh, particularly, you know, about the likes of Spotify and, and the gatekeeping, because I think, you know, there's been so many stories about artists obviously making peanuts, and not only do they make peanuts, but it takes ages to get those peanuts. So I think... That's that's the tragedy of our time, isn't it? You know, we've gone from global rock stars like U2 or the Rolling Stones or, you know, could name a thousand bands who've obviously made gazillions from, from being rock stars, but it's just not possible in the same modality these days. And it's all about the merch or the touring or, you know, all these other factors that, you know, just it seems like it's just so much work that needs to go in to be able to actually get payday for the for the art that you create and I think this blockchain idea is absolutely incredible seen it you know spoken about in actually at TEDx last year in terms of making the fashion world accountable because I guess you can then once the community set up I'm just theorizing here potentially kind of see the direct impact and keep track of that and you know the people that are contributing that are supporting can then really see like you know where that support is actually going. Yeah, this technology, I mean, look, I will say there is a ways to go. Um, There is not mass adoption um, and there's been some terrible people um, and companies doing terrible things in this space. Um, I will say Bitcoin is not crypto. It's a very, very different thing Um, and it truly is decentralised and that's really what we're going towards is the idea of decentralisation so that there are no gatekeepers stopping you as a podcaster, Joe, or me as an artist manager or any of our artists um, building a community around you and having a direct connection to the people that give a shit about what you do Um, and there we this Sahel project that I talked about um, we partnered with an incredible company based out of London called Token Tracks Um, they are a web3 company for the music industry Um, shout out to Miles Leonard and to Tommy D um, who have set up the company And they come from the music industry and they're really focused on doing exactly what we've just spoken about. And when I started talking to them about this project, the MySale project, which is the only project that we're running for the UN at the moment um, as as kind of music advisors and consultants. But when the UN came to me about a year ago and said, look, we've got this project, could you help us with it? I was like, you know what? Like, if we're going to do something, it has to be done differently. You know, like the... The um, 
Beyonce event that I talked about that we did with Natty and when I first met Valerie Amos, that was about 10, 12 years ago. And we reached 1 billion people in one day on that, with that project. However, I wasn't personally running it. There was some creative agency running it. There were no email addresses or any data that was got. And so I kept saying to people, so how do we re-engage these people that... <coughs> I kept saying to to the UN and to the people involved, like, how do we re-engage these people that have supported the project? And they didn't know how to do it. And it was kind of early for, for the UN to do a project like that anyway. But this is what we can do now. It's about tapping into that community that deeply care about what you have to say um, and deeply care about maybe your journey as a musician. Um, another artist that we work with is a young um, hip-hop artist called Damascus Voice. He, um, Damascus fled Syria when he was 18. He's lived in refugee camps all around Europe. Um, we lost touch with him for about a year. We kind of feared the worst because he went on, you know, those boats that nobody should go on. Um, but, you know, he he landed in Germany. Um, we've been to Berlin a few times, got him in the recording studio there. He was on a record with Skip Marley, Bob's um, grandson. Skip had actually written a song called Refugee and Skip and, and Damascus are the same age. And I was telling Skip and Sadella, his mom, about, you know, I'm about to go meet this young hip hop, you know, refugee musician and... Skip was like, can you put him on my record? Like, how incredible would that be? And so we did that. We got him in the studio. He did a verse on Skip's record. And then the UN invited us to go and perform it um, for World Children's Day. And that was in a a couple of months before lockdown. Um, We flew there again to the General Assembly, um, performed the song. Um, Damascus voice, uh, we couldn't get him to New York then because, remember, Trump was still in power and Syria was on that list of banned countries. And we hired lawyers and, you know, to try and get a visa for a couple of days and we just, it, 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 we couldn't make it happen. But Skip performed the song. We went back to Berlin and pre-recorded Damascus voice doing his rap. We projected that onto the screen at the UN um, and it was just a really great moment to be able to like showcase music that can really come from anywhere. And yeah, it goes back to this belief that like when you've gone through so much adversity, you have something really important to say, we believe. Absolutely. And uh, I was only having that conversation the other day, you know, about the responsibility, I think, for certain artists who do have, you know, a really big platform. Obviously, it would be amazing to get artists like that to immediately elevate them to that level. But I do feel artists that do have a platform do have a responsibility to say something and use their voice and use that platform and convey that message through music. A bit like Annie Lennox did the other night at the Grammys and she was the only person to call for a ceasefire. I mean, I was quite, yeah, quite surprised that she was the only person that said anything. But what a moment, actually. I was just like, yes, Annie, I absolutely love her anyway. And her ex-husband, I believe, lives on the island. But um, apart from that, <laughs> I think she's an absolute legend for putting herself out there and actually saying something. I mean, it, it, I feel it's important. Not every artist feels like this, you know, kind of is drawn to using their platform to really stand up. But you know, certainly with the musicians that I work with and the projects that I've worked on and, and we choose to work on, it's a really important thing for us. What Annie did was incredible. Um, you know, there there definitely does need to be more, you know, music has this power to transcend every boundary, this in, incredible 
resonance. It has the power to heal in so many ways. And it doesn't necessarily mean as a musician you're making music, you know, like a protest song. It could just be that by the very nature of the music you put out there, you're, you know, making someone's day a little brighter or you're, you know, helping someone get off the ledge that they're on or whatever it is. But, you know, music just is is such a powerful tool. Um, there's another project that we're about to put out next week, which I'm very excited about. Um, it's called Freedom Now with Nick Mulvey. Um, Nick, who is here on the island often, um, he wrote a beautiful song, and, and this goes to your point, Joe, about using our, you know, you know, all of us using our platforms to say something. Nick wrote this incredibly beautiful song, um, kind of inspired by the revolution that's going on in Iran. Um, he has his great friend, Goldshifter Farahani, who I believe is also back and forth on the island um, often. Um, she's this incredible Iranian actress that was actually exiled um, from her home country, I think about 15 years ago. She was in a Ridley Scott movie. Um, she has not been able to go back. She does the spoken word on the record, and part of it is from an incredible um, poem, and part of it is from the United Nations Human Charter, um, and then there's another singer called Aruj Aftab. She is the first Pakistani woman, in fact, to get a Grammy. She won a Grammy last year. She's an amazing, amazing singer. And it's Nick and these two other incredible women that come together on this piece of music that is really, it not only comes from what happened, you know, over a year ago to Masaramini in Iran and, and sparked so, you know, the revolution that's been going on for so long in Iran. But we often talk about this now as we're getting ready to put the record out. Freedom is such something that everybody has a right to freedom and we live in a world where it is not so. And any of us that can use our platform to do something, we do have a responsibility to do that. Whatever it is, however big or small, you know, this world needs to change and we all know it. What will happen with the proceeds of the record? Um, well, we are we're really excited actually to partner with Choose Love. Um, Choose Love, based out of out of the UK, um, we just we love the work they do. Um, they've really, you know, not only do we Conscious Music Group work with the UN, but we work with a number of grassroots NGOs and, and organisations. And Choose Love, I really feel like just when I look at the kind of the landscape of charities, they've done it so well because they it's almost like pop culture now, the way they've set up their platform and they use social media in a really brilliant way to bring awareness to things that a lot of people don't really understand. Um, and they humanize it. You know, this all it we're just talking about humanity. I think Annie said it as well. You know, it's not about taking sides. It's not about agreeing with governments or disagreeing with governments or siding with anyone. It's just about humanity. It's so interesting because just before this interview, I was sitting there cleaning out my memory card and deleting stuff to make space for, for this amazing conversation that we're having or I'm having or I'm listening to. And um I was clearing out all of my news reading stuff from 2021 and actually I quit the journalism right before the Afghanistan um, reoccupation and actually when I saw all of that going on I was like oh my god I've just had two years of reading about death and Covid then it was Afghanistan then it was the Ukraine then it was the revolution in Iran now we've got the situation in Palestine and I was like I'm just so you know it's not that I don't want to use my voice to elevate these stories but as a journalist all you do is read about the bad and the terrible, heartbreaking, 
brave stories that are happening worldwide. Also, let's not forget about what is happening in Iran. But I mean, it's just bone crunching after a while to be, you know, saying those words out loud. And it's interesting what you say earlier about not everyone should, you know, particularly people that have been traumatized by by certain scenarios that they've been left in through. And their music is perhaps their only escape. So I, I do agree with you on that one. And I can just imagine how therapeutic and how powerful it feels for somebody to find their voice if they do want to say something. But equally, I also respect the fact about what you just said and, and some people shouldn't be doing that. But I think what Nick is going to do, I mean, I, again, shivers down my spine and I can't wait to hear the track. And I, you know, I think she's just such a, a powerful speaker, Golf. And yeah, I'm just, wow. I had absolutely no idea that you were about to tell me that. So I cannot wait to hear that. When's it coming? Um, you will hear the preview next week on Radio 1. I think it will be... Tuesday the 13th I will let you know um but just yeah to go back to your point Joe you know I don't watch the news I haven't watched the news for many 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 years because one I, I think it's it's completely swayed by whoever's you know paying the paying um the payroll of the presenters but um it's really fucking depressing watching the news and you know what I found in my in my travels as I go around to different places I mean to go back and talk about Damascus voice he is this young, um, you know, young guy that has been through so much and he is so just full of integrity and life and just, you know, just so polite, so respectful, just such a joy to work with. And um, there's just so much amazing music out there and it just, you know, often when you talk about what's going on in, in different places in the world, you forget that there is this just incredible culture and oftentimes in these countries and these places – Music is the very fabric of their society. You know, I think about um, uh, there was an interview between Kendrick Lamar and, and Quincy Jones and Quincy asked Kendrick, where do, where do you think rap comes from or came from? And Kendrick said, oh, you know, like the ghetto or Compton or, you know, of course that's what he was going to say. He's growing up in Compton. And, and Quincy said, well, yeah, no, it doesn't. It comes from the the praise singers of Africa. And so I go back to this record that we put out last year um, and we have a few more um, kind of things that we're doing with it this year called My Sahel. And um, there, there are a group of people in Mali, which is one of the focus countries of this project, called the Griots. And what they really are... Um, their job is is to kind of hand down the knowledge through music and through song. And this is really where rap came from, right? So when Quincy's kind of saying this to Kendrick, he's like, the the histories of music, it just is so powerful and it comes from all these different countries and different places. And, um, yeah, you know, I feel like my job is to use, again, whatever platform I have to just tell some of these stories, you know. I never from all my time working with the UN and being kind of, you know, being a part of like this kind of narrative of um, crises around the world, because we work in a lot, we do a lot of stuff in different crises countries. But I've always wanted to use music to help change the narrative of what does it mean to help another person, right? I don't want to see another fucking half dying African kid on at Oxfam, whatever the charity is, on a TV commercial telling me to donate money because it doesn't make me feel inspired to donate money or nine ninety nine or whatever it is. It just makes me feel guilty. 
And what we've really tried to do over the years and as we've got to set up this new company, Conscious Music Group, it's really about how do we change the narrative of what it means for anybody to just help and support another person through music. So, for example, when we put out Nick's record next week, it's just going to watch the video knowing that you watching the video or you streaming the record on Spotify is going to help someone somewhere. Like you, we just want to make it really easy and not not have this like guilt kind of narrative all the time because actually there's amazing music from everywhere in the world. It doesn't matter if it's in a conflict zone. Sometimes that creates even more powerful music. So it's a big part of what we've tried to do at Conscious is really to change that narrative and really uplift and inspire people to help each other. Beautiful. I mean, I was actually, yeah, I mean, it's a slightly different change of tack. I went to have lunch with a farmer today. He's like, you know, he's literally going to have to maybe shut his farm because you know the money is just like completely gone and I literally spent an hour just sitting there listening to him and, and rummaging through my contacts to see who I could potentially put him in touch with to sell the things that he needs to sell to be able to make ends meet to keep going until it gets a bit busier in the summer and it's just you know I would have done anything I could like the look on his face it was just like devastating and I really just it's the same thing isn't it? it's like we we can all help each other if we can make time I mean the the only thing we have is time ultimately and to make space for that and and to support as a community and to put something back into somebody else's pot is is really the most you know the biggest gift that we can give to each other really is that and whether it's music whether it's you know supporting in another way and you know I think this is an island that really does rally around as well when people you know times are tough I've seen that a lot uh, recently for various different things and I think we've also got a Gaza fundraiser happening actually this Saturday in Calanova. If anyone wants the details for that, I might also stick that link as well as one to your um, wonderful new project in to the episode show notes. Yes, I will. Um, And another shout out I just wanted to give is to an incredible grassroots charity that we've been working with um, based out of London called Road to Freedom, um, run by Raid Khan. Um, Raid, he just does incredible work in the music industry anyway, but um, they will be doing an event to raise money for Gaza next week in London. Um, And he just brings amazing musicians together. Um, But when we first met um, a number of years ago, I remember him saying to me, you know, I go around to refugee camps on the weekends in my spare time and take aid. I mean, it's extraordinary. He used to do Grime Aid every year before lockdown happened. Lo- yeah, all the Grime guys donate stuff to him. Um, you know, clothes, shoes, money, whatever it is. And with just a few thousand dollars they or pounds, they, ta- they make aid parcels and him and his kind of crew of volunteers. And they, they've been to probably about 100 refugee camps, <clears throat> excuse me, to take aid to these places. And when I first met him, I said to him, you know, do you, have, do you come across musicians? He's like, all the time. And I said, could you find me some, you know? And I have a list of maybe 12 musicians that he's found in his travels at refugee camps because he'll go there and spend a couple of days there and get to know people. Um, he introduced um, us to Damascus Voice, um, the reason that we're working with him. We have a really super exciting project with him coming up this year. Um we finally, he was living in a refugee camp just outside of Berlin. We finally helped him get out of the camp. I mean, into it, albeit a, a kind of shitty small uh, apartment, but at least he's out um, working on new music um, that will come out at the end of the year. And, 
Yeah, it just is really important to just highlight the work that, that people do. And um, just to go back to your point, you know, about the farmer and, and community, it's so important, this idea of community. And I feel like it can get, the word can get a bit overused now, but it really is important because like you say, that's what you find here on this island. People rally around you because there is a sense of community here. And that's what we're aiming to do in terms of how we help our artists get out into the world and, you know, basically make money for themselves and their families and maybe even their communities, right? And with this new technology, um, that's what we're aiming to do. Um, you know, it is it is about economic empowerment, right? And it is about um, being able to build long, long, long-term sustainable businesses around our artists and... This is what I believe we will see um, the biggest shift as this new technology kind of gets more mass adopted, Um, especially when you look at things like DeFi, decentralized finance, and the power of Bitcoin. Um, It is about no longer being dictated to by the government and the banks. It's about being able to hold on to, to have your own sovereignty, but also hold on to your own wealth. And that's what we're trying to do. And that is the shift in consciousness that I believe we're going into. And from an astrological perspective, you know, we've moved into the age of Aquarius now and it's about living together in harmony and, you know, no more of the the old regime, which was the Piscean age, which was the age of veils and secrecy and illusion. Now it's about how do we live together in harmony. That feels like a beautiful place to finish. <laughs> Thank you so, so much. I knew we would not have any problem chatting for an entire hour with no preparation, but um, it's been a joy to listen to all of this and maybe we'll have to come back for another episode. I can feel there's a lot more to be said uh, when Conscious Music Group is up and flying high and the artistry and the music is um, coming in full abundance. It sounds like it's not going to be too far away. Yeah, we'd love to be back, Joe. Thank you for the work you do on this island. It's really important. And thank you for bringing everybody together, as you always do. Reset Rebel. It's the Reset Rebel. It's the Reset Rebel. It's the Reset Rebel. Coming to you every day.